Amen. He reigns. That means that he's in absolute control. How many of you believe that? Yeah, you know, when you look out on the world and have to experiment and live in all of that's going on, sometimes it feels chaotic, sometimes it feels messy, sometimes you're wondering what's happening, but in spite of that, the Lord is in absolute control. So um, that's good for us who belong to him, amen? That's kind of what gets me going and keeps me going. Um, each and every time uh, I wake up, I thank the Lord because of the fact that I know that he is in control. You know what that means also? I don't have to be. And what a relief that is when you don't have to be in control of everything. You can just rest in Christ. And that's literally uh, what uh, Christ allows us to do because of what he did at Calvary's cross. The issue that we had uh, most and problematic with the Lord was our sin. And he took care of the thing that was most important. The thing that we uh, most have threatening us is the fact that we would die without our sins forgiven. And he took care of it at Calvary's cross if we would put our trust in his finished work. So we don't have to work. We just get to enjoy his blessings and our position in Christ. Amen. I do want to mention real quick because I just got information uh, from Sister Stella that Camila, sweet little Camila, kind of had a little bit of a relapse and had to be taken to the hospital this yesterday or sometime this past this weekend. And so uh, she's back home and she's got, received new medication. But let's pray for her. Uh, I didn't know until I got a little text here a minute ago. And so let's pray for Camila. She's been uh, battling and, you know, some, some days are better than others. And there's been a long spell since she had another uh, issue with that. So uh, let's pray for God's hand on her. And um, so if you don't mind, just, let's just bow our heads. Father, we commit to you this morning, uh, Camila. And you know her health uh, concerns and what's going on in her body. You created her, Father. We're asking you for a special touch from your healing hand. We know, Lord, that your word promises us that you are the great physician and that by your stripes we were healed. And so we thank you that we can uh, lean into your promises and we can trust you, Lord, to uh, uh, deal with and handle any of the issues that we have in our lives concerning our health. We put it in your hands and we thank you that we can in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to start chapter 4 of Ephesians. And um, I thought what I would do is just start right there, uh, chapter 1, uh, chapter, uh, verse 1. Uh, if you look carefully, um, Ephesians, if you go to the text, if you guys will slide, uh, we'll look at uh, this. You know what, I probably should use a different slide. There's a darker side to the right, but either way, you can still see it, right? So um, let's just kind of look at it for a second here, if you don't mind. Um, I'm going to read uh, a few verses, and then we'll pray about the sermon. Let me just get to my Bible here on my tablet. And we'll look at this chapter. I'm going to look at maybe just the first 15 verses, not the whole thing. There's so much going on in here. It's really weird. When I start studying, I'm like, there's no way you could go through this in one sermon. <laughs> you know? So let's stand, and I'm just going to read uh, down to uh, verse, uh, let's see, 16. 
Amen? You guys don't mind? All right. Uh, the subtitle here is Unity in the Body of Christ. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high and he led a host of captives, he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended to the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God who, uh, rather to mature manhood, to the measure of the statute of fullness of Christ, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is ahead, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it may build itself up in love. Wow, that's a lot, huh? We're going to figure it out. Let's pray for the sermon. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what Paul has given us here in Ephesians. And help us understand, Lord, what your will and what your purpose is for our lives as a church, as believers. And we all have a place, we all have a part in building your kingdom here on earth and sharing the gospel, the good news with the world that doesn't know who you are. Thank you, Lord, for so great a mission, so, so, uh, such an amazing calling. And we ask, Lord, as we read today, that we would be worthy of such a calling. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So, Paul reminds us that he's a prisoner for the Lord there in verse 1. Right? Kind of wonder why he says it again. I think he's saying it again so that they don't forget that he's writing these things from a situation and circumstances that aren't so favorable, but that doesn't matter because he belongs to Christ. Prisoner for the Lord. Notice, before it was prisoner of the Lord. Now it's for the Lord. So wherever we are, whatever our situation is, our circumstances, we're there for the Lord. Right? Uh, I, I repeat this uh, quote quite a bit. Um, it comes from a movie. Um, wherever you go, there you are. So you can't change where you are. So why not 
where you are, live there for the Lord. Instead of maybe what could be the other options we have. Complaining, moaning, groaning. Feeling like we're stuck or victims. No, wherever we are, that's where we are. God's in control. So why don't we make the best of it in Jesus' name? Where we are. Joseph did it. You think he was happy about being thrown in prison because he did not cheat with Potiphar's wife? Remember? He did not commit an adulterous act with her. Instead, he was faithful to God. And for his faithfulness, he gets rewarded prison. But he knew who he served and he knew that his life was in God's hands. So, Paul, that's why he mentions it. I, therefore, haven't taught us about doctrine, having taught us about what we believe, having showed us what Christ has done for us. Now he's going to transition to, okay, so for instance, if I am studying to be a doctor, and that's quite a few years, but first you've got to get your, your bachelor's in, I think it's a master's and not, it's a PhD program, medical. No, some people say up to 12 years. Then there's an internship. But what if that's all you ever did was study and prepare for something, but never actually practiced it? Right? I know, uh, and I've heard of people that I, am, I, I know about that studied for, to become lawyers. And they got their Juris Doctorate. But there's only one issue with it. Unless you pass the bar, you can never practice. So the thing I'm trying to say is Paul's saying, hey, I've taught you all these marvelous things about Christ and what he did for you. Now, we're to take our creed, what we believe in, and we're then to conduct ourselves accordingly. We're to take what we believe and then our behavior should reflect what we believe. Right? We're to take doctrine and then perform our duty. Do you see what's happening, what he's doing? He's moving into another area. So understanding who we are first, our position in Christ, understanding what he did for us is the foundation of what he's going to ask them to do here. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So understanding what our foundation is, what we believe, who we are in Christ, this is the foundation of our worthy walk. Okay? Any relationship that has value and benefit and is a blessing always has a worthy behavior in it. Okay? I like to say it this way. Any relationship that's a blessing, a benefit, that's a pleasure to be involved with, always has dignity. Why am I saying that? Because our relationship with the Lord also has dignity. He did what was dignified to bring us to Him, to, to die on the cross for our sins. He's given us uh, understanding of this new uh, kingdom that we live in, given us His his rules, his ways, and understanding of principles of the kingdom. And now we're to live them. We're to walk worthy of this calling. Because it, who is it that called us? Well, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
you know? So we're to walk worthy of the calling. So if you feel called to be a police officer, and I can bring this up today because there's a lot of negative views of police officer, you're supposed to walk worthy in that profession. That means you're supposed to do things right. We don't want any corrupt police officers, especially in a position where the society has confidence in them. They're supposed to do the right thing. If you're the president of the United States, you're to walk or live or practice that role, that position, worthy of it. Right? So the Christian also. So we don't walk worthy so that the Lord will love us. We walk worthy because he does love us. He already does. It, we're motivated by gratitude of what he has already done for us and what he has shown us. Right? So we really do need to understand how much he did for us. And that, that's what the first three chapters were about. We finally got past them. What did he do for us? And then when we understand what he did for us, then we naturally want to serve him and obey him out of a heart of gratitude. Amen? So the word walk used here, you're to walk in a worthy manner. It's a term that refers to behavior. It's a term, a term that refers to conduct. It's a term that refers to practice, how you, what you practice, right? And the Christian's Behavior and the Christian walk implies that he understands he has a purpose. Okay? <laughs> you understand you have a purpose. There's a goal. I don't know. There's an objective. There's a mission. The Christian's desire, I think, constantly should be to glorify God with his, what? Walk. So that you're worthy of the calling so this walk, I think it's important for us to mention it, this way of living, now that we're Christians, it demands effort. You can't do it unless you put and invest in it. We invest our time in a lot of things. We expend energy in all kinds of things in our life. Well, the priority in our lives is first God. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these other things shall be added unto you. So the desire of our lives, now that we're saved, is to glorify God by our lives, and how we live that, how we walk that life, that should be primarily what we're concerned about. So it requires effort. Some people, oh, I can't live the Christian life. How can I do it? You have to actually do it. You have to try. Amen? Now we do have help. We have the Holy Spirit. We have a new heart. We, are, we have understanding because we have God's Word. We, we've been discipled. By the way, if you're a disciple, that means that you have discipline. I mean, I don't want to get up in the morning and have a prayer time. That's sad. That you don't want to. Because I, we could mandate it that you have to, but then you remove yourself from living in His grace and doing it for love's sake, for the fact that you 
Do it because you love him. You're motivated by the, a heart that's thankful. See, there's right ways to do things. Now, you can serve the Lord out of fear. Go ahead. That's a miserable way to live. You can serve the Lord because he demands it no matter what. Or you can ask God to give you a heart and the desire to do the things, not because you have to, because you want to. There's a difference. If you haven't got to, in your Christian walk, from having to do things to wanting to do things, I'm telling you right now, you're living uh, in a low pay scale. We have a higher pay scale, in other words. We have a higher level we can walk in. Not because you have to. You want to. And the reason you want to is because you have understanding. You understand what he's done for you, and you understand the purpose for which God's called you. So, it, the walk, this worthy walk demands effort. It demands discipline. And it should show progress. You should be able to look at your life and look back and see that you've grown. Otherwise, you've stalled. There's no, and I've said this many times for those of you that have been here with me for these years. I say there's no neutral gear in Christianity. It's either forward or backwards. You can't just stay neutral in nothingness. You must either be moving forward or you're going backwards, whether you know it or not. Yeah, I'll give you an example of going backwards. I learned this many, many years ago from my pastor. Have you ever been to the mountains like Big Bear after a, a huge snowfall, like a huge storm? Everybody runs up there, by the way, right? Let's go to the snow. Well, if you go a couple weeks later, you still see snow, and a lot of times on the trees, on the branches, a pack of snow on branches, you know, it could be thick. And then you could be standing there, and all of a sudden the snow falls off the branch, a bunch, and lands next to you. You go, oh, look what just happened. No, it didn't just happen. For weeks since it snowed, that undergirding of the snow on the branches has been melting. You just didn't see it. It takes time to fall, to go back. You let it over time melt, as, as an example of the snow. So you could be standing there looking at it, or not even aware, and sitting next, or standing next to a tree that has a bunch of snow, and all of a sudden it just falls off, and you go, oh, look what just happened. Well, the same thing is true for Christians. Maybe somebody falls or goes backwards in the Christian walk, and we would see it and go, oh my God, look, that person just went back, or that person fell. No, you didn't just fall. It took time for the undergirding to melt away. For the love and the gratitude and those things that should motivate us to serve Him and to live for Him. Those things started to erode away a long time ago. We're just seeing the results now. Didn't just happen. So the reason discipline and effort are required is because you have to make sure you don't allow that to happen. Okay? I'm talking about walking worthy of the Lord. It doesn't happen by accident. It's intentional. And just try not to take care of your garden for a while, right? You go out there after three or four weeks and you have yourself a jungle and weeds and all kinds of weird, you know, fruit that's rotting and fruit that has fallen to the ground and maggots growing all over it. Just don't take care of your garden for a while and see what happens. 
Just don't take care of your responsibilities at work for a while and your boss is getting frustrated and growing impatient with you and over time he maybe gives you a coaching and then someday because you continue to ignore the things that matter to maintain, right, the worthy walk or your garden or maybe something at work to where they say, hey, sorry, here's your pink slip. Or you go to your yard and it's no longer a beautiful garden. It's just a mess. It doesn't just happen. So what I'm trying to say is to walk worthy of the Lord, it, it requires discipline. It requires effort. It requires us to be aware that if we don't take care of it, it can go the opposite direction. So here's what I have to say about that. Faith is the fruit in the life of the person who walks worthy. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. Because faith is action. So when you're constantly practicing and believing and trusting in the Lord, that's the fruit that allows you to walk worthy because you're connected. Faith connects us and it produces fruit. So what does that walk look like? Paul is very specific. He says in verse 2, be completely humble. Why couldn't he have just said be humble? Why does it have to be completely? Because we could decide that one day I will be humble and one day I won't be. Right? <laughs> what does it mean to be humble? It's about meekness. It's about uh, not trying to always be in control, not trying to always have the last word, not trying to always have your way. You walk humbly before the Lord. You wait on Him. You do the things that He requires of you and you wait on Him. You can see your whole world in front of you crumble, but you're not worried about it because you know, ultimately, humility. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. What's the opposite of gentleness? Aggressiveness. What's the opposite of patience? Impatience. It's like, oh Lord, give me patience, but hurry up. <laughs> Make it happen today. These are the qualities, this is the standard that God's asking us to live by. Notice, humbly, gently. Don't be so harsh with people. Don't be so aggressive with people. Because what's that showing? You want it your way. You want to control them or the situations or the circumstances. So you push into it. And I'm not saying that there aren't things that we shouldn't pursue and desire and go after. But I'm saying and when, it's, when we're talking about our Christian walk, there needs to be a humility there needs to be a gentleness. There needs to be patience. And then as far as loving one another, he says we need to bear one, with one another. What does that mean? We need to put up with them. There's a perfect word in Spanish, aguantar. You just bear with it. Are people always lovable? 
Are people always lovable? No. So that's why you have to bear with one another. Amen? Kind of got to hang in there with them. Kind of give them a chance. Give them a third chance. Give them a fourth chance. Hang in there with them. So I like what it also says in verse 3 that we're to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So to keep means to maintain what? Unity. Unity of what? Of the Spirit. So when we know Christ, when we're born again, we get the Holy Spirit deposited into our hearts. We're to keep it. Maintain it, if you will. We don't create this unity. It's created automatically by knowing Christ. So I know Christ. He lives in my heart. You know Christ. He lives in your heart. The goal is to maintain unity, not to create it. If there's no unity in the body, that's because we didn't keep it. We didn't maintain it. We allowed other things to creep in. So he never commands us to create it because he creates it. Our duty is to recognize that we've been called to, one, to be one body, one faith, as we're going to read here in the next verse. Our duty is to recognize it and to keep it, to maintain it. That means it's something you do every day. Amen? There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope. So this is talking about the oneness of Christ in that when we belong to him, we all belong. We're like, it's like we belong to the same team. If you use sports as an analogy, which I probably use too many times, but a good team is what? They're together. They're unified. Okay, I don't know if you follow sports, but you know how last year... The Dodgers had a, apparently they were just really good. And they won 111 games, more than any team has in uh, many, many years. Not the most ever, but close to it. And then they lost to the San Diego Padres in the playoffs. Who they had beaten and won the division by over 22 games. That's huge. They're not even in the same conversation. And then the Padres beat them. And, and now they picked up some great players. They paid money. And to this year... There's rumors of problems in the locker room and their record reflects it. Yes. Continue to be fighting in the locker room so that, that see, you can see that out on the field. Go Padres, not. What I'm trying to say is unity matters. We can't do very much if we're not on the same page. We can't move forward, progress, advance if we're not one body, one faith, just as it says in verse 4. One hope that belongs to our call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Notice that one's one God and Father over all who is over all and through all and in all. You know what brings unity to the body? The, the unity to the body comes to us when we realize that we have areas that are in common. Right? That those things that we have in common are greater than our differences. Because there are differences in this body. 
but those things are not as great as the things we have in common. What do we have? Just go back and read verse 4 and 5 again. I'm not going to do it. You can. What do we have in common? All those things. What do we have different? Probably a lot. But they're not as great as the things that are potentially different in us. And then finally, he finishes a little section here where he says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So every one of us has received grace. Every believer has a unique spiritual gift that God individually distributed to you according to his will and according to his design for your life. So I don't need to be jealous about the gifts that you have. Because God gives that to you specifically for you. You don't need to be jealous, and most likely you're not, of any gift that I may have. He proportions it as he desires. We don't have to fight about, hey, he got more than I got, like, you know, at the dinner table. Man, how come, how come he gets four slices of pizza and I only get two? I remember I used to sit at the table of one of my friends every Friday night at Joe's house was pizza night. Now, they had six kids, and then there I was, too, number seven. So what do you think happened to the portions of pizza? Everybody got less because I was their guest, and I'd be sitting there eating with the family, right? And so maybe someone might say, if Robert didn't show up, I'd have more pizza. We don't need to be jealous. He proportions out, he distributes and gives each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. It's according to his will and purposes. We're just to take what he gives us and use it to its fullest potential. So I don't have to worry, in the body, we don't have to worry about what someone else has. Maybe that sometimes happens in the body, doesn't it? Oh, that person is more blessed than the non-blessed. Well, you don't know that. You don't know everything about that person's life. And who knows, maybe God's keeping you in a place to where, so that your walk stays steady and you don't go off the rails, if you will. So anyway, Paul ends by saying that. Then he moves into another section, which I have always found interesting, verse 8. I think you can see it in the next slide, if they move it up. If not, you've got a device. So verse 8 says, Therefore he says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. And he gave gifts to men. So keep in mind, he ascended and then he led a host of captives. So here's what happened. There were people that were captive. Let's keep that in mind. Who are they? Where are they? These are the people that died before Christ came to earth, like in the Old Testament, but they were believers. And where did they go? Well, they went into Abraham's bosom. We know it from the parable. Right? So when he died on Calvary's cross, those three days that he was in the tomb and his body was, his spirit, his soul went into Abraham's bosom and he took all the Old Testament believers and he, those that were captive and he freed them. He basically took them to heaven as a reward for them and as fruit or a gift for them. Look what it says. So in verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. So, okay, so some people say, oh, this is so hard to understand. Well, when did Christ descend? Two times. When he was born in his incarnation. So here's God always in 
eternally present. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And then we hear the Christmas story. He descends, he comes in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He's born in Bethlehem from Mary. He descended, he, you know, he's in heaven. So he descended in the incarnation. When he dies, and I just explained it, he goes into the bosom of Abraham to let the captives free. So he descends even further. But then he ascends. When did he ascend? In the resurrection, when he goes and sits at the right hand of the Father. What does that tell us? What does that mean? Well, let me, let me continue to read. He who descended is the one who also ascended. Far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So that's a resurrection. This is a quote Paul's using from Psalm 68, verse 18. This quote is showing us an analogy of how Christ received the right when he raised from the dead to give spiritual gifts. So this psalm was written by David and the analogy is this. Let me explain it to you. It's a hymn of victory. It's composed by David. It celebrated God's conquest of the Jebusite city in Jerusalem. So there was a triumph that happened during David's reign. And he wrote about it. But it's also a prophecy of Christ. And what happened was that he triumphed, that is David, who is the descendant of uh, the forefather, if you would, of Christ to come. Jesus is a descendant of David. So the king... After he triumphed over his enemies, so when Jesus went into Abraham's bosom and took the captives, captive? So he changed captivities. You're no longer a, a slave or a servant to, to Satan, or you're now my servant. So he takes the captives, and in his resurrection, they go with him into heaven. So the same thing would happen after a triumph in the regular days of King David. He would, the king would bring home all the spoils and all the prisoners. That's the example that Paul is using here in Ephesians of Psalm 68. So here's what Paul's doing ultimately. He depicts Christ returning from his battle on earth. Where did that battle take place? On the cross. And he goes back into heaven in his resurrection. And he brings with him trophies of his great victory at Calvary. What are the trophies? Those souls that were once in Abraham's bosom. He takes them with him into glory. The great victory that took place. So he led a host of captives. Free. That's what he's referring to. So when he re resurrects, he gives, he gives gifts back to those of us that are still here. So that's the part I'm getting to. Broke at verse 11. So Jesus has now conquered death. Jesus has now gone into Abraham's bosom and taken the Old Testament saints that believed that were actually looking for him, but he was still in the future. They're now in heaven. He takes them like, if you would, uh, in this case, uh, in triumph. He takes them with him into heaven. And then he gave gifts. What are the gifts? Look at verse 11. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds or pastors and teachers. So he goes into heaven. In his victory, he gives the church gifts. What are they? These different, what they call, this is called the fivefold ministry. There's five ministries that exist. 
Some believe that some of these offices no longer exist, like for instance, apostles with a capital A, which would have been the original disciples that were following Jesus and prophets of the Old Testament. And or some people believe those, those no longer exist as because they fulfilled their role already during the time of Christ. But evangelists, shepherds, and teachers continue to exist. Those are the gifts. And what's the purpose of them? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. To prepare the saints for the work of the ministry. To capacitate the saints for the work of the ministry. So the gifts that are given to the church, there are those apostles. Apostles means those that have been sent. There are prophets. Those that foretell. And you could do so by just teaching God's word. You can tell what's going to happen in the future by knowing and understanding God's words. And then there's evangelists. These are the people that have the gift to preach a sermon and then afterwards make an invitation for people to be saved. Their mission, their primary call is to preach a sermon that's evangelical in nature so that people who don't know Christ can at the end of the sermon recognize their need to be saved and the pastor or rather the the evangelist has this gift to be able to call people to the kingdom amen there's a difference between that and a role of a pastor not that a pastor can't be an evangelist but the evangelist that's actually a particular calling for some people who are really good at it for instance greg laurie i don't know if you've ever been to the harvest crusade just have a special way of doing that particular type of message where people come forward. I've seen 5,000 people come forward when he makes the altar call, which is pretty amazing, you know. I've been in a crowd uh, one time, in a number of years I went to serve, and then I would uh, be helping uh, those people that made these decisions and commitments. So an evangelist, now shepherds, pastors, that's a special role. They take care, they watch over the church. And teachers, what's unique about verse 11, pastors and shepherds and teachers, is that they're really one role. They're two distinct functions, but you can't really have a pastor that's not a teacher. You can have a teacher that's not a pastor, but you can't have a pastor that's not a teacher. He does both. That's the role, discipleship. Then what is the purpose? To equip the saints. To give you a preparation or to give you the capacity to do what? The work of the ministry. So here's what I'm going to say. Not the pastor's job to do the work of the ministry. It's the pastor's job to prepare people to do it. The pastor can't do everything. He tries, but he gets spread thin. There are gifts, there are, there are ministry opportunities that are unique to you. If you have a ministry here, you know what I'm talking about. You feel in your heart the need to do some type of service in the church, some type of work in the church. That's your ability. Maybe you're really good at greeting people. So we'll call you a greeter. Maybe you're a person in the church that's really, really good at praying for people. 
And you, people come to you and say, hey man, can you pray for me? And there's some people that are really good. And there's, these are also different things you will find in Corinthians that talk about different ministries and different gifts that exist in the church. There's some people that are better at administration. They know how to run and they know how to organize. They know how to take care of the finances, things like that. There are people who have the gift of helps. They know how to help people. And it naturally happens that person goes to someone else and it just naturally happens kind of like without effort. Right? So, these are, the, these are the different gifts of the Lord to the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. So the work of the ministry is done by the saints. The flock. Well, let's look at a flock. Let's use the analogy of a flock. They have a shepherd? Yeah. And then you have the sheep, the flock. Does the shepherd create babies? No. The flock does. Who creates new life? Let's just use the analogy. The flock does. The flock is the one who creates new life. The flock is the one who does all the work of the body or building up of the body of Christ. Notice that in verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So, that's what we're here for. Amen? Now, the rest of this we can easily run through because we now understand the central idea that Paul has here. Verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood that is no longer children, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the whole point of the gifts to the church, these fivefold people that are mentioned, these fivefold ministries, is to equip the saints, to build up the church, and to unify the church, give them knowledge, make them mature, right, and become full in their walk with Christ. So, verse 14, that we may no longer be children. Oh, we're supposed to grow. No longer be children. You guys would look at me funny if I was up here with a pacifier. Like, uh, Pastor, you kind of be old to be sucking your thumb. I like sucking my thumb. You would agree. Hey, uh, you knock, tell the person on your side, hey, let's get out of here as fast as possible. That big old gray-haired guy up there sucking his thumb. No, you want maturity, right? That's what he's talking about. You can't stay a baby forever. I know puppies are cute, but they can't just be puppies forever. They grow up. Right, Carla? Although I think you still call yours a puppy. Yeah, I got a feeling I see all those posts on Facebook. Cute, cute dog. Mm. What's the point? So that we may no longer be children. No longer be children. Guess what, church? We have to grow up. We have to grow up. Amen? Growing up and taking the responsibilities that, that he's given us. No longer tossed to and fro by the waters and carried about every wind of doctrine. So there's no desire to run from one place to another or from one book to another or from one uh, pastor to another or from one uh, idea to another or hey, did you hear what this person is preaching over here? And There's nothing new under the sun. There's just people that know how to make it sound new. 
and create. And there, most of the time it's deceitful. That's what it says, doesn't it? Carried away of every wind of doctrine by human cunning. By craftiness in deceitful schemes. Wondering if I should say this. Okay. These healing crusades. I want to say it right from the beginning. Why is it that they only happen in the crusades? How come we don't see them in hospitals? Going from room to room healing people. Or why is it that it always has to be some spectacular event in some auditorium where that only takes place? And always, always, they ask for money. I'm just saying. Do you see what he's talking about here? There are those, and then, Pastor, I just, how come we don't have healing around here? Who says we don't? Does it have to be like a show? Well, yeah, the show brings people, but does it have to be that way? No. I've always, that's my question for them. So, but the bottom line is we grow up to maturity and we understand that God heals. And we know that God can heal here and God can heal you laying in your bed and you're praying and he can heal you as you're at the beach if that's where he chooses to do so. God can heal. And then there are times where God will delay healing because he has his, a purpose. So for me to push and for me, and then for instance, what I've seen, and I've been in this for 40 years, what I've seen is sometimes when the person who's sick is not healed, they'll be accused of not having enough faith. Well, who are you to judge the heart of someone else? And then put them that guilt on them. I'm just saying, there's a lot of cunning activity and craftiness and there's a lot of deceit going on. Let's stick to God's word. Let's stick to what we know to be true in everyday life of a Christian. Because he's talking about walking worthy of the calling. That's a daily thing. That was at the end of verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. I wonder why he mentions that. Rather, what should we, do? What should we be doing? Speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together, like the body is, by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is properly working, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You want to see a mature church? Look at a church that demonstrates love. Love for one another, working together, like the body does. One arm and the other arm, and the hands and the eyes and the ears and the feet and the legs and everything works together to create a body that's equipped. Amen. That so that's where we're going to stop today because we do have a Lord's Supper. I'd like to take a moment now to pray for this and close the sermon. Hopefully, we see here what the. Lord had instructed Paul to tell us as a church on how these things work. Amen. So let's pray for the sermon. Father, thank you. We, uh, we thank you, Lord, for, for what you've shown us today. And we pray, Lord, that uh, we'll guard it and allow it to penetrate into our hearts.
so that we can continue to grow and mature and serve. We want to do so, Lord, out of a heart that's genuinely grateful and thankful, and not because, Lord, we're burdened to do so without having that love in our hearts and that joy in our hearts. Help us to understand that we're part of something that's very large, the privilege, Lord, to be part of your kingdom and to be part, Lord, uh, of this body and of anybody, any church, to serve you and to fulfill your purposes, to be instruments, Lord, in your hands. Thank you for that. And we'll ask, Lord, that you'd help us to mature, to grow in Jesus' name. Amen.